D-E-N-I, diversity, equity, and inclusion. One of my favorite academics, Jordan Peterson, says this string of ideas together is the recipe for communism and should be a sign that the left has gone too far. Much like bigotry and ethno-supremacy is a sign that the right has gone too far. Others hear D-E-N-I, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and are inspired by dreams of a more respectful society. Whatever connotation you have with the idea of D-E-N-I, one thing is for sure. It's factual, not alt-factual. It is the real deal. Corporations and organizations of all sizes are investing heavily in initiatives to help their workplaces become more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. But how in the hell is your employer going to help you and your colleagues be less bigoted? As an organization development consultant, I have witnessed the rise of a niche of consultants helping organizations address this area. But I continue to wonder, is this work really impactful? Are people showing up to these DE&I trainings, workshops, experiences with their deeply held beliefs about others and walking away embracing difference? Or is this just another form of organizational masturbation? Now, don't get me wrong, I do believe we as humans have a long way to go to becoming less ignorant, fearful, vicious, and biased towards others of all shades, stripes, types, preferences, and predilections, but is the workplace where this cultural shift will come from? Today, I sit down with Dr. Juan Lopez, president of Omnistad Associates. He's also the co-founder of Diversity 2000, which is a national think tank that focuses on compelling diversity issues. He has led the DE&I efforts for organizations like Pepsi, Johnson & Johnson, and many others, and I am excited and curious to jump into this conversation with him to learn more about what he is seeing in the field of DE&I and where this shift towards a more equitable, inclusive culture will truly come from. Dr. Lopez, thank you so much for joining me today. Okay, so first correction. I'm not a doctor. You're not a doctor? No. I thought you were a doctor. No. Is that not a... You didn't get a PhD? No. Well, excuse me. Yeah. All right, so what should I call you? Just call me Juan. Juan. All right, Juan. Welcome to the studio. Thanks for joining me today. Everybody always says that, but I don't have one. <laughs> You've got a doctorly essence about you. That's what they say when I do work at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I've already fumbled. but um. So, yeah, let me just kick it to you. Who are you and what do you do? Okay. It's a very complex question. Um, so, you know my name, Juan. Uh, and who am I? Uh, I guess my first approach would say um, that I'm a third generation Chicano um, with uh, Tarahumara and Yaki roots um, between my two parents. Um, I'm a person that spends a lot of time not only working but practicing spiritual paths, and, and um, so that's key. And um, I think I'm a, also a father, 
a husband um, and someone who spends a lot of time trying to build community. Excellent. I, I so appreciate you uh, you bringing up all the different identities. I know a lot of our conversation today is going to talk about race, diversity, and I know some all of us, regardless of our traditions, we also hold all these other identities. So thank you for touching on that. Yeah. So um, what, what is the work you do in this space? I've been doing diversity work since 1981, before we were calling it diversity. Actually, back then it was called uh, race work or it was called affirmative action work. Okay. Um, because I started off in uh, community mental health, we often told, called it also cultural competency work because it was all geared towards trying to help professionals better understand the clients they were serving. So there was sort of a convergence right around 81 with with uh, a number of things. One was being impacted by the Reagan administration that was really um, working hard at eliminating affirmative action. There was a lot of negative um, attention on anything tied to EEO and affirmative action. But we also knew that as we were having emerging populations of diverse people across many cultures, races, and ethnicities, etc., that it was uh, important that we not lose sight of that and figure out how we're going to empower people to be who they are in their multiple identities, if you will, right, right. Um, and not go underground, but to be people who could speak out that could help shape uh, local politics, uh, uh, help shape the quality of uh, services being offered. And so fortunately I was in that mix and I came across uh, a person that asked me um, if, if I'd be interested along with some other colleagues in putting together uh, career development programs for Latinos. He, he was doing that for African-Americans and had very successful programs that started in the 70s. And unfortunately, he became my mentor, and that was Dr. Price Cobbs, who wrote the book um, A Black Rage. And so I learned a whole lot from him. He was an MD, psychiatrist. And then we started you know, developing different programs, working with different organizations, Hewlett Packard, Banks, Wells Fargo, what have you, on this career development. And about the same time, people started asking us, you know, what can you do to help build teams or help people in the organizations better understand, um, you know, all of the different people who will now work for us? Mm -hmm. And that was the diversity piece. And so we were calling it a lot of things. But essentially, in 82, 83, we landed on managing diversity. And so... Um, you know, that was kind of when the field began to build. And fortunately, I was considered a pioneer in that area, mm -hmm. working with a lot of key people. And so throughout your tenure in this, this arena, um, wh what do you see as the connection between innovation and diversity? Diversity is innovation. If you think about uh, diversity, I think Meg Wheatley's book, um, where she talks about um, leadership and she talks about um, studying diversity either in nature or in a whole host of areas. There's a 
a way in which diversity creates innovation because it creates new, new formats, new frameworks, new points of references, new evolution. Mm-hmm. And, and so when we talk about diversity, the hard part is being able to talk about what diversity brings yeah. because a lot of people see diversity as less than. So diversity is difference. Mm-hmm. When, when most human beings look at difference, they don't always say, well, that's going to be great. They always say, what does that mean to me? We put it in a hierarchy and yes. place ourselves somewhere on there. A lot yeah. of the whole dialogue going on nationally and, and some of like what Ingram talks about and uh, Tucker Carlson talks about and Steve Bannon is they talk about diversity as being bad and evil. But the reality is if you look at uh, humankind, we don't survive without diversity. We borrow all of these cultural practices from each other and this uh, knowledge. So, so in my mind, um, if we embrace diversity and listen to people's diversity of thought and their experiences, it helps us build better systems in which to collaborate and grow and better understand how we can make a difference in the world. And when you're saying diversity, what do you mean? Are you talking about race? Are you talking about thought? I mean, there's a lot of different metrics of diversity. My approach to diversity is um, I look at it kind of following and in, in, there's been different models, but Loden's model was one of the first. It was called primary and secondary dimensions of diversity. Um, I think when I did that talk, I had that slide up that you were probably, because you were facilitating some other things, mm-hmm. you might not remember. But essentially, the, the, there's primary dimensions of diversity, which are race, ethnicity, age, gender, sexual orientation, and ability and disability. For the most part, that defines who we are at that primary mm-hmm. level. Now, obviously, if we get older, if we're lucky, Uh, unfortunately, if there's an accident, you might be disabled. Some people, um, you know, change their 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 sex, sexual identity. Uh, So so but for the most part, those are primary areas. Mm -hmm. And then secondary areas are what we call dimensions of diversity could be thought, culture, nationality, language. Um, geography, it could be a bunch of other dimensions. And the secondary dimensions are always moving, mm-hmm. y- you know, because you might add something new on a secondary dimension that um, you have to pay attention to in an organization. And it, and it might be politics. Um, it might be um just ways in which to look at how people bring that particular dimension into their life mm-hmm. and it impacts the way they live, make decisions, and interact with others. Um, so for for millennials, more and more of what they're bringing that still might not be a key dimension but is one that's going to shape their worldview is the shared economy model, mm-hmm. right? Um and, and so that's another diversity dimension that has an impact on how people see themselves in the world. So when I talk about diversity, I'm talking about primary, secondary, 
and and how do you manage diversity across all those different dimensions and then you know you put that into an organization and if it's let's say uh, for profit there's another factor around how those things operate based mm -hmm. on the culture of that organization if you put it in a nonprofit there's another factor in the way that that operates uh, so it, it, it's it's essentially beginning to understand differences and similarities. All right. So you've had the pleasure of working in this space for a long time. A lot of different types of organizations, be they governmental, nonprofit, financial, private. Mm -hmm. Corporations, yeah. yeah a lot of corporations, yeah. I'm sure I could go on and on. But th throughout this time, what, what are some of the promising trends that you see as it relates to diversity in today's workforce? I think we're at a point that, let me answer that by, by addressing two areas. I feel diversity currently is under attack. It's not seen as uh, value added. It's, it's being viewed and there's a lot of different ways in which people talk about diversity but they're seeing that diversity is somehow um, taking away from uh, core identities or belief systems about what we're about, whether that be North Americans or whatever. You know, mm -hmm. I think that, that, that there's a subtext to how that plays out and that influences things. And the reason I say that is that I think it's sending a message to people who are diverse that says you you're not okay if you want to succeed if you want to be good you, you should um, fly under the radar and the reason I say that is because I grew up with that mindset in the 50s where uh, people who had different ethnic identities felt like they had to downplay who they were in order to fit in mm -hmm. adhere and, to the dominant culture yes, norms yes yeah. all of those kinds of things because if you were to, you were perceived to be too ethnic or if you were African American and you were too dark um, it would be seen as a negative and so people got the message that that they had to do a lot of code switching to uh, mm -hmm. in order to survive. The brilliance of diversity in our age is that more and more people understand you can be who you are. We keep saying that message. How do you, you know, show up, be who you are in right. the organization. Bring your talents, bring this, bring that. But, but now we're fighting against messages that say you better conform to a certain way of being and that's the way it should be. And, and I don't want the next generations to grow up with this idea that they have to hide who they are. So so that's a problem I see, and I'm trying to figure out how to talk about that. Now, on the promising side, global diversity is picking up quite, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, I got back from Princeton, where I was part of a group that ran uh, um, a conference on diversity in 2030. And so it, we had people from... Um, all over the world working on this. It was about 100 people. So um, Pakistanis, uh, people from England, throughout England, 
Australia, Canada, South Africa, Mexico, you know, a lot of different diversity practitioners. Mm -hmm. And it was a three-day program where we, we facilitated it on the basis of we're looking at diversity in the year 2030. Uh, what does that look like? And then how do we take that into account when we look at all the megatrends that are going on? Right. And so um, we're trying to use a lot of different approaches. And a couple of books that we used that drove that was um, Zero Margin Economy um, um, by Jeremy Rifkin and uh, The Net and the Butterfly. And I can't remember the author of that. That's a, a book about uh, innovation. And, and, and the authors of that book taught out of Stanford, and we're doing a lot of work with high tech on innovation. So it's just, you know, those kinds of things. So we, we built in the fact that zero margin economy is going to change the world that we see in the 21st century. And so how can we innovate in a way that builds on diversity rather than lets the fear of change and diversity uh, scramble how human beings treat each other? Yeah. And so I think... Um, Using the GDIB, global event, uh, was it global diversity inclusion benchmarks, which is a fairly extensive document that's used worldwide, gives some pretty good um, information on on best practices that people are using worldwide, and showing the benefits of of diversity and how it's having a positive impact in organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh- I feel like there's this interesting dichotomy. I completely agree that you know diversity and minorities are under attack right now, and at the same time, you know, I, I look around, I see there are more women in leadership positions. There are more Latinos running organizations. There are more African American by every metric of diversity. There's more in the the mainstream culture mm-hmm. than ever before. So. Uh, it's a it's an interesting battle. Like how, how do we reconcile these two competing ideas? Well, there's actually less women CEOs currently of Fortune 50 corporations, less African American CEOs of Fortune 50 corporations, and I think than ten years ago, than than five years ago. Really? Yes. Yeah. So if you look at, um, there was a program called, uh, what's well, ELC, which was founded by African Americans, and my mentor was one of the key people there. He, he had a lot of influence in helping people become CEOs. But at one point in time, and I think it might have been three to five years ago, there might have been six um, African American CEOs of of major corporations, not just the top 50, mm-hmm. right? But if you think about it now, um, once the, uh, what's his name, Chenault retires from American Express, uh, then it only leaves the person that's um, the CEO of Kaiser. Okay. And that's a healthcare industry. It's a corporation, but yeah. it's still a nonprofit, right? Right. So, so you see the numbers changing there, um, and and that's always been a battle with women being in in CEOs in in organizations. I, I know there's some now that are at GM, and you see a few more 
coming in. But overall, the numbers have never been extensive. It's, it's been less than 10 or 5 yeah. out of all these hundreds of corporations. Now we're talking about the corporations. I feel like our, our economy, because of the uh, zero marginal economy that is growing, yeah. is shifting away from corporations being the only game in town where small businesses, solo practitioners, um, small to medium-sized businesses, there's a lot more opportunity and accessibility there. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know any of the stats about um, diversity and leadership at that rung? Not necessarily Oh, I see. Um, well, I think we do know that women-owned and and particularly Latino-owned businesses, like in our county, for instance, mm-hmm. are growing very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, there continues to be an increase in a lot of different areas along the East Coast, uh, L.A., you know, just different areas yeah. of these small businesses that are growing. They tend to be more service-oriented businesses as opposed to, let's say, high tech or, mm-hmm. or you know. So, so we're looking at probably service-oriented manufacturing um, kinds of things. But I, I, I guess I would say we'll see over the next maybe 10, 15, 20 years, we'll see more of that change. So you'll see uh, Latinos in particular, beginning women and Latinos, but I see a lot of Latinos that moving into insurance, um, other healthcare, other kinds of small businesses that have the potential to grow. And so what do you see as some of the barriers to organizations becoming more diverse at the top of the organization charts? Two big areas hit I think one is organizations frequently talk about not finding talent independent of race or ethnicity or gender although we know in high tech they talk about women not naturally having the same kind of skill sets Mm -hmm. uh, and that's being disputed by a lot of different folks but it's constantly been said that finding folks with um, engineering degrees or, or, or some of the, the scientific skill sets that you need to get into those industries, computer science, etc., is hard. And, and it's hard to find just a host of people coming in. Yeah. And so let's say you're fortunate enough to find some good people. The other hard part is how do you retain people? And sometimes the clash occurs where the organizational culture isn't welcoming or people don't feel like they could be who they are in those organizations. And I've talked to a lot of people who've worked in different organizations, whether it was high tech, banking, retail, healthcare, and and understanding how to navigate the organization and 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 begin to connect with people, find mentors, position yourself mm-hmm. to get visible projects. Um, demonstrate your capabilities but is that because the organization has an overtly racist culture or behaviors or because there's not enough uh like looking or similar types in the organization for comfortability i think most organizations have increased awareness over the years through diversity Mm -hmm. programs and other kind of programs where it's it's reduced 
that kind of, of uh, blatant racism. Obviously, every organization, and, and whether it's public or private or community, has some people who have um, some real problems around race um, or religion or what have you. But yeah. as a whole, I've seen that be reduced in organizations. I think where it gets a little bit more complicated is we don't always understand that the culture of that organization is built on values and built on norms that are very conducive to predominantly white males. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of a normal, you know, you don't see it as being different. You just see this is the way it is. Well, for people coming in, some of the ways in which decisions are made, behaviors are displayed, conflict is addressed, collaboration is practiced, those kinds of things may not necessarily be conducive to people with other values. So mm -hmm. if it's if you come in and it's uh, um, the person who speaks the loudest, the person who uses power to get things done, the you know the, the highest paid person in the room, all of those yeah. kinds of things, but your orientation is to work with people, is not to put yourself first, but it's the team. And, and, you know, that's how you've been raised, then you're going to come in and they're going to look at you and say, well, you don't fit here. Yeah. You don't share the way we do things. That goes back to what we talked about around tradition and, and requirement, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I, the reason I speak to that, because I ran uh, uh, Johnson & Johnson's um, Global Leadership Program for Men of Color. So I had people coming in from China, India, Africa, Europe, uh, Latin America, and the U.S. And my job was to help them understand how to succeed in the organization. These were some of the top um, people that they've hired throughout the best institutions around the world. And so my goal was to help them understand the organization how they could come in and begin to use their empowerment to bring ideas, help grow the business, deliver on results, and at the same time, recognize that there were certain practices that you had to navigate to be successful in the organization. For them, networking was really big, you know, because we get things done through people. They own 300 businesses worldwide. The other is you had to grow, develop, and build people because it was through people's ideas that we came up with all these I, I, you know, ideas for medical devices or pharmaceuticals or what have mm -hmm. you. So I would be working with somebody from China trying to figure out, well, how do I work here in New Brunswick, New Jersey and build relationships and have people see me as a leader? Same thing with somebody coming in from India or from Puerto Rico. And so my job was to help create that leadership uh, understanding of how you be yourself, mm -hmm. don't get locked into code switching, bring your best stuff because that's what you were hired for, and find a way to make it work in an organization that has 110,000 employees and everybody's damn smart. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so you've said code switching a few times and what just came up for me was, uh, what, what's the distinction between code switching and style flexing? 
Well, code switching is changing who you are to fit in. Mm -hmm. Style flexing is you adjust your style. So if you're, let's say, using the disc as an instrument that mm -hmm. says, you know, you're any one of four styles. If I'm hard charging and I'm a D and I'm working with people who are very analytically oriented and they're a C, well, my style is not going to work well with someone that's slower and meticulous in the way they operate and less inclined to conflict, especially if I'm like, get it done yesterday. Uh -huh. They're going to get it done and they're going to get it done really well, right. but they need more time to study all the factors before they make it work. My ability to maneuver across different styles is style flexing. Code switching says, if I show up and I have, um, I'm obviously Latino, and I have certain ways in which I eat, uh, see the world, the uh -huh. food I eat, the way I dress, and the message I get is I have to be less of who I am at from a you know in terms of my ethnicity and and then i have to talk about different things and be different that's code switching i have to change who i am to fit in okay. and, and historically i've worked with a lot of people in coaching who did that and then they had existential crisis in their 40s because they couldn't figure out who they were anymore so code switching could have profound psychological effects over time mm -hmm. Whereas style flexing is more of a conscious decision to be effective with Stop. different types, yeah. different people. Okay. Well, well, think about it this way. For a lot of years, if someone was gay or lesbian and they wanted to be successful in an organization and they thought if people knew they were gay or lesbian, they would be written off. Mm -hmm. They had to code switch. So they, they had to pretend to be straight. Right. They had to pretend to do a lot of things in order for people not to find out who they were. That holds true for a bunch of other things. Yeah, dimensional diversity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you for making that clear. So uh, I imagine it's quite difficult to change people's deeply held beliefs and biases, period, let alone in an organizational setting. So how does one go about addressing that and beginning to shift these? Sometimes it's not as hard as you think. Um... There's a couple books out, and I think there's a documentary that's going to come out where it talks about an African-American currently who's developed um, a number of relationships with neo-Nazis, Klan members, and white supremacists. And I've only just read a few articles about the guy, and I can't remember his name. And these guys know that they're talking with a black man? Yeah, he goes out and visits them. Face-to-face. Face-to-face. It shows them talking and doing things. Okay. In fact, this guy built a relationship with um, a guy that pulled a gun on him at the uh, Charlottesville riot that happened almost a year ago. Wow. And he just felt that despite all of that, it was important to try to build relationships. And he's been successful with some of that. Um I, when I was at Sonoma State, I ran a program called Getting Out, which was for people coming out of prison. We had about 15 people that had, you know, did serious time in, in San Quentin, Folsom, or Soledad. Mm -hmm. 
and they were at Sonoma State and they were getting their degree and I made friends with a guy that was a big leader in the Aryan Brotherhood and you know we had a chance to sit down and talk and, and try to understand things and he said he it took a while but he began to unlearn what he thought um, were those core racist messages that he lived his by, his life by, right? And 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 I've worked with different groups that have that. I think when you study that, there it, there's a tremendous amount of um, work needed in terms of having people sit down and better understand each other and then maybe it begins to challenge these core racial assumptions that they're operating from mm-hmm. i um I'm, I'm thinking of um some key things that happen are uh, significant emotional events that shift your paradigm and then you kind of go whoa I was raised with this, now I see this. I, I had a project I worked on with a steel mill and it, it was, I was there because it was a consent decree. The plant got sued because they had, it was, they, they produced steel things and they had a crane and they were, the crane, these guys would put uh, like, you know, mannequin spray paint it black put a noose around its neck and run it up and down the crane Mm -hmm. and you know so finally it blew up and um so i was asked to come in and work with this group and there are a lot of people who were very uh, opposed to my being there and would say a lot of racist stuff to me or 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 do all kinds of things so it took a while for me to build at least a, 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 an op, a place where we could begin to do the training and have better conversations and open up and hear people's perspectives on diversity. And was that through a series of one-on-one conversations? with That was for yeah. the need assessment. Okay. So yeah. I had a better sense of what was going on. And then I started to develop the training program based on the need assessment. And it was at multiple levels. Yes. What I found had a tremendous impact is I realized people really didn't understand each other even though they worked together or belonged to the same union. Mm-hmm. And so I introduced this this model called the DISC, which is again a, a, a style model. And we help folks understand it really well. And, and the light came on for people where they said, wow, that's your style? And that style could be a style of, of, of a white person an Asian person, a brown person, you name it, right? Right. And they said, I thought you were that way from your style because you were black. Or I thought you were that way because you're a woman. Right. And and then they began to see that they were filtering a bunch of things through these dimensions of diversity, always using the racial lens. Because if a stereotype is blacks are aggressive, but there's a particular style where people are more assertive that reinforces what right. they think. Yep, I'm right. Yeah. yeah. So, so once they begin to get more information and start seeing that that style does have a difference in the way you understand what's going on, that begins to shape the foundation of your racial construct. Mm-hmm. Interesting. By diving into the individual psychology 
a little bit. Just individual yeah. behaviors. Behaviors, yeah. Yeah, yeah. styles. Yeah. Huh. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Is that the common practice in the DE&I field around shifting these deeply held beliefs? Um, or is this your innovative approach? That was really... There wasn't a whole lot of people doing it when we started to do it that uh -huh. way. Um, the, people are bringing different things in now, but, but back then, there wasn't a whole lot of that. I think the goal of diversity is to increase understanding and awareness. So any number of programs that you offer training in that do that can be helpful. You yeah. can use a, a whole lot of experiential exercises if you do them right. Mm -hmm. You know, the old classic walk the line. Uh, or um, um, headbands, or and you know, there's different experience, experiential exercises that reframe the way you see the world that start to open up ways in which people communicate across their values and and um, their their norms and their assumptions. How confident are you that the work you're doing in the organizational corporate setting trickles down to? You know, just the everyday life. When I go home, and do I go revert back to being the bigot I've always been, mm -hmm. and then I show up at work and I code switch back to the new norm that's more inclusive and equitable? Yeah, good question. I think today, I believe it's more effective, and I say that because I think people in in the millennial generation. Mm -hmm. Um, across the diversity are far more serious about building a community. So you see a lot of white people now interacting more with people of color. It was far more segregated with the baby boomers. But if you look now at the generations, there's a lot more natural diversity in which people engage. So mm -hmm. I found that, that in my work, younger people are pushing us and saying, okay, so, you know, I grew up, like my son, who I said was 48, grew up in Oakland. 80% of his friends are black. If he was in a training and people were trying to talk to him about assumptions he's making about black people as a Latino, they better know what his experience is before they make some assumptions about whether or not he gets along with blacks. Yeah. Right? Because his world was predominantly with, with black folks his girlfriends were black. Yeah. And and it was so natural um, all the time that he doesn't have those challenges. Now, he may have to work on some other areas that he has to look at. Yeah. But in yeah. that regard, it, it, it isn't. And so when, when we were first starting off, that was hard. That was hard because people would, would uh, challenge us and say, you don't have a right to change who I am and how I think. And we said, true, but we have a right to talk about what the standards are here at work when you're at work. And those are the practices you have to follow if you want to be a member of this organization. Mm -hmm. And so you could do what you want to do away from home. But when you walk in this door, this is what's expected of you. Gotcha. And that's why you get paid to do your job. So you could shift behavior there. I don't think people fundamentally changed when they went home because, you know, they just didn't. This stuff's deeply ingrained in us. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But but I think this current generation 
it is far more open to, and I don't want to, you know, make big generalizations, but based on right. my observations, you see a lot more um, multicultural, diverse groups hanging out in the younger groups. Yeah. So ultimately, for the the future of race relations in America, do you think we we overcome our current challenges by direct interventions? Or through just the natural arc of more, a more diverse community where we're just, we're connected to more diversity. We've got more understanding of it because that's not an Asian. That's my friend. Or that's not, you know, black people. Those are my teachers. Does time solve it or does direct intervention solve it? I'm, I'm reflecting on your questions. Very, very powerful question. I think it's a combination of both. But I also think that it has to do with the level of consciousness going on in, in, in society at a given time. After a big recession like we just had, where people lost homes and they lost jobs and they lost um, standard of living, folks are deeply wounded. Mm-hmm. And when they start looking at what am I going to do to help my family, what am I going to do to do this and that, Um, there's a lot of fear. And then if you're starting to say, I'm competing against all these other groups, and I believe that that woman has an advantage or that person of color has an advantage over I, then you're going to get angry and you're going to say, that's not fair. We see that with what's going on with um, white supremacist thinking and how they're attracting more and more people. And historically, we've seen that happen. When we've seen African-American communities or Native American communities over the 300 years where they begin to be successful and have businesses and do this, there have been big riots and those towns have been burned down and and people lynched. So it's delicate. I, I would have thought that our consciousness evolved, but what I see going on now suggests to me that human beings can be easily... Um, led into um, the kind of dialogue that occurs on race that leads to genocide. And and we've seen it, you know, in, in Serbia, we've seen it in Rwanda, we see it in different places. And if you go to the Holocaust Museum, you could see how the pattern is established and it's consistent. Whether it happened in Nazi Germany, you see that same thing in Serbia when it happened, and you, you see that same thing throughout the world. Yeah. So human beings, through fear and lack of education and awareness, can in fact go back to ways of using race to get rid of the other mm-hmm. and then build justification for doing so. It's a scary cycle and seems we're in the, the thick of it right now. And I find uh, hope that there's... There's a public dialogue around it, and you know there's a lot of misplaced anger, and there's uh, you know the level of hate speech, and mm-hmm. you know it feels like people are more are quicker to jump to the epithets mm-hmm. that were were out of fashion when when I was growing up. Yes, I agree. I agree. I, I was surprised. Um, 
by some of the things that happened after Trump was elected. And I have clients in Napa. We had to do some work because some people were um, assaulted verbally, mm-hmm. Asians and African-Americans and, you know, things saying like, get out of here. This is now we're in charge. And uh, in Windsor, the... Um, Mecca. Yes, there yeah. was all the spray painting and stuff like that. Fortunately, that didn't last real long, and people were strong in the way they came up and fought against that and, and, and laid it out. But we still have uh, incidents of, of, of things happening. It's mm-hmm. just you have to stop it, and people who are leaders at all levels need to speak out and talk about and reinforce what's important. So this is a good transition to uh, my next question, which is what advice do you have for organizations that are hoping to embrace diversity as a uh, as the fuel for their innovation. I think organizations aren't necessarily looking forward to see how things may impact their survival economically and competitively. If in fact technology is going to provide a lot more. Um, resources that people won't do, then what are the jobs of the future and where do people fit? If, if uh, Jeremy's idea of, of IOT, Internet of Things, does in fact squash out a lot of jobs, then organizations, particularly corporations, it saves them money. If, if there's a reduction in, in work, manufacturing, and a whole host of those things, and people are buying goods out of Seattle with Amazon instead of going to your local um, hardware store or something like that, yeah. there's a reduction in sales tax and gen- general revenue fund that impacts what cities use to develop their programs, provide mm. police services, um, a whole host of things, right? Right. And so then how do we reimagine what our environment's going to look like between work, community, uh, where's the money going to come from? If we lose the middle class and it's basically rich and poor and we're finding that a lot of people with money don't want to pay taxes, how do we make sure our water stays clean? How do we make sure our roads are drivable? How do we make sure our education is the best education can be to help train the next generation? So from a systemic standpoint, it all fits together. And and I think we need to think about that because if we're saying um, we want to add more diversity, well, that could be good. But where do you add it? Where, where are people going to work? Everybody's going to be trying to find a place to make a living and, 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 and provide for their families or, or do things. But if we don't have all of the other pieces in place, if you don't create a thriving city where businesses want to come or no longer businesses can evolve to be able to figure out what is the new product that they want to have, how do you do that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it all fits together where as human beings, independent of our diversity and our gender and all of those things, right. we still have to figure out how we're going to 
uh, be in community, work together, and try to figure out what is it we're trying to do to make our water better, to make our streets better, to make our schools better, to make our, our ability to communicate and, and celebrate. All those things are going to be affected by technology. And I don't think we're spending enough time looking at that. And even though that technology and that shift is diversity of thought in nature, yeah. it's, this is an opportunity for us to bring as many people across the, 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 a wide diversity of spectrum, social economic status, what have you, together and say, what does our future look like and what do we want to build? Right. And if we could do that, and all voices at the table are contributing and heard, then we're talking about equity in a way that builds. But if we're making decisions in back rooms uh, and those policies have a negative impact on certain communities and those communities tend to be communities of color, then we're not practicing equity. We're in fact using racial related policies to have make decisions that hurt people. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, imparting, what's your call to action? What's something that people can do at the individual level to begin moving this forward? I use a model that is systemic in nature, and it's personal, interpersonal, and organizational. I think we each need to really work hard on continuing to develop, um, increase our learning, be clear about who we are in terms of our emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. engage. And if we are committed individually to doing those things and, and practice it, then at the interpersonal level, we could build relationships across a wide spectrum of diversity yeah. and begin to understand how we all can work together and do things, um, celebrate, solve problems. And, and then if we do that well, we could do that within our organizations. And that helps build the culture that reinforces the, the kind of um, ways in which we're trying to build humanity, for me, in, in the 21st century. I so appreciate you you saying the word celebrate throughout this because I've I've often thought and experienced that that food and experiencing the traditions of others has been a way to to grow my understanding, grow my perspective, and while you get to see how how another culture, how a different dimension of other does something different, how similar it is in many ways to my own traditions. Right. So through the right. celebration, through sharing food. Um. We share, going back to part of that definition, which comes from Dr. Thomas on differences and similarities, we share about 85% of similar things right. around who we are because we've grown up in the same country and we see the same TV shows. And right. We, you know, all of these kinds of things gone to the same schools. So it's the, the differences tend to be 15% across those dimensions of diversity. Yet somehow people 
say that that 15% is a fundamental difference that separates us. Right. You have to look at who's saying that and why. The fact is that we have, we share more than we don't share. And and when people look at, at folks of color, they kind of question, well, what are, hey, I grew up in the same environment that you grew I know white people great. A lot of my friends are white, right? Yeah. I, 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 I understand what it takes to be in the white world. What I suggest is you need to understand what it takes to be in a Latino world mm-hmm. or a black world or an Asian world. It's not that big a difference. Some cultural changes, this, this, or that. Yeah. But, you know, come on over to our side and experience how we see the world. Yeah. And, and people, the more we do that, the more we understand that as humans, we bring different things. We always have, but how can we now build on those things to make us all better? Yeah. Final words before we wrap up? Have fun. blind spots, our unfounded fears, and our false narratives. Stereotypes help us make these assessments and judgments that propel us forward daily, and they also hinder us daily. So if you have the opportunity to participate in the DE&I experience, do it. We all have a lot of work to do to shift how our society treats each other. And while it is easy to think in terms of groups, I think this last year has been a great example how false this group identity narrative really is. You know, it's convenient to think that all black people are anti-police or all women are anti-Trump or all immigrants are against these child detention centers. But in conversations I have had with individuals from each of these groups, I have been surprised and at times shocked at what I have come to find. Each of us has individual beliefs, traditions, experiences, values, challenges, fears, and dreams And thus, in many respects, I would argue we are all diverse as we are all individuals. Our diversities, our individualities are what make us such an incredible species. And the better we can effectively and healthfully harness our interdependent collection of nearly 8 billion individuals, of which you are an equal stakeholder, the more we can collaborate, innovate, and solve the problems that we are all too familiar with and those that lay ahead. I really loved how Juan put it at the beginning of our talk. Diversity is innovation. Innovation requires creativity, and creativity is born from the alchemy of blending of multiple perspectives, possibilities, and individual people. While individuality is powerful, it is even more impactful when mixed with the individualities of others. Opening ourselves up to alternative perspectives provides us with more knowledge, experience, and insight than we would have with just our own thoughts. Diversity can be as simple as trying new foods, taking evening classes, learning new subjects, traveling, or reading books on new topics. If we are to solve the challenges that lay ahead, we need everyone at the table contributing and providing their unique skills and perspectives to continue on our trajectory of forwarding powerful social innovations. One suggested a lot of great material in that last episode. 
If you'd like to explore this topic on your own or related topics, I also suggest you check out Zero Marginal Cost Society. That's that book from Jeremy Rifkin he mentioned. Maps of Meaning by Jordan Peterson. What If? Short Stories to Spark Diversity Dialogue by Stephen L. Robbins. And per Juan's recommendation, I'm about to go check out Net and Butterfly, The Art and Practice of Breakthrough Thinking by Olivia Fox Caban and Judah Pollock. Once again, I'd like to thank my first sponsor and good friend, Jay Lately. If you are interested in sponsoring a future episode, just let me know. Jay Lately's music can be found at soundcloud.com backslash just lately. Thank you once again for tuning in to Onward. I'd like to thank all my regular listeners and supporters. Make sure to subscribe to Onward at soundcloud.com, iTunes, or Anchor FM. Until next time, Onward and Upward. <laughs>